chapter. That's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing well out there. It's good to be together. Um, July 4 weekend. I hope you're able to enjoy these couple of next couple of days and get some get some rest. Um, we've been doing a series called the Grace Vibe. It's a topical series. I've done a number of messages from parables, and today we are in a a historical book, a a, a book of the prophets, a minor prophet, only because Micah didn't write that much. But he's a major, uh, major league prophet in every other sense. And so Micah uh, is our subject today. The Grace Vibe is, uh, is the, it, we're looking at the Bible in a, bit, in a bit of a different way. What we're doing is we're asking this question. Okay, here's the Bible. Here's the text. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. Great. Now, what are we like as a result of this this text? What are we like? How do we come across? What's the vibe? If we really understand the gospel or we are grasping it, learning about the gospel, what is our personal vibe? Very, very important. So I've been trying to highlight aspects of this, and then as we look at this text this morning, we're already going to be thinking about application. So you can sense we're moving toward verse 8, by the way. Uh, that is a famous uh, text, probably one of the top 20 verses of all the Bible. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at uh, Micah 6, verse 8, about what God requires of his people. I don't know, as we get started, have you ever thought, uh, do you think of yourself as a quick learner or a slow learner? Are you a quick learner or a slow learner? Now, if you're married here, I should have your spouse talk. Uh, I'm really surprised how often I have to be reminded of things. Um, I don't know what it is with my socks, but they end up all over the house, right? I'm reminded of the basic, uh, uh, what it means to be a roommate, as it were, um, in our marriage, in my marriage with Marianne. Are you surprised how often you have to be reminded of things in the Christian life? Um... I'm surprised. I'm surprised uh, with myself. Uh, went to undergraduate Christian college, took all kinds of Bible classes. Um, if that wasn't enough, went on to seminary, um, took all kinds of Bible classes there. Those are not quite enough, are they? they don't quite enough for me. It's interesting, isn't it? You'd think. I'd had enough, but it's not, it's not true. I have to be reminded continually, continually. It's, that's the Christian life. That's what we think about when we think about the subject of sanctification. It's sort of, uh, 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 there's a view of sanctification that means you, it can all happen in one weekend. Uh, you can uh, perhaps come forward at a revivalistic service and, and you can really be fully dedicated, fully surrendered, fully fully committed. You can finally really make Jesus your Lord. Well, I am a Monday morning guy, and I am intrigued with what it looks like for uh, sincere people to now face Monday morning. And there certainly can be good things that happen when someone uh, repents in a, in a kind of big way, and they recognize how they've hurt people and how they've 
been a rebel against God. That can be some good things that happen there. But what we believe as a church is that there's a progressive forward kind of movement to the Christian life, and Sunday after Sunday, we are reminded. And so I'm, I'm surprised how often uh, I am reminded, but I'm also grateful this morning that God is kind to me, that it never, ever, ever would be enough just to go to a Christian college or go to a seminary and somehow be fixed in your understanding of things. Uh, and so God in his grace gives us the church and the means of grace, the means of grace to uphold us, we will be needing to be reminded of important things even this morning. Now, the, his, it's a little bit challenging to parachute into a text like um, Micah 6, a little bit challenging to sort of just suddenly, it might be like a bucket of cold water here. Wow, we're in Micah 6. What's going on? Uh, what, what's happening? And what is Micah talking about? And so let me do what I can to just orient you uh, quickly to what's going on. And uh, God is using a prophet. Now, a prophet was like a prosecutor. We often think of a prophet as perhaps a visionary and telling uh, ideas about the future. And I would suggest that that's about 5% of what a prophet did. Uh, A prophet would come with a message from God, having been, as it were, right before the throne of God, and having received a message, and largely it was a complaint against God's people. The people are in covenant with God, and the prophet is coming with the covenant document. Uh, And he is going to be a prosecutor to the people and the king how they have departed from the covenant. So they come with uh, these oracles, these statements, and they would proclaim aloud, often at the city gates. Think of Jerusalem at the city gates there where everyone sort of met. They did their commerce. They sold things. They interacted. Well, there's the prophet Micah. And he is stating aloud, with a loud voice, his woes and his concerns and his message from God. And he might come back the next day with the same message, the next day, the next day. And so this, in all likelihood, this passage we're looking at would have been said more than once by by Micah. And we praise God that we have it written down for us. Now, Micah is in verse 1. Micah is being told by God, Micah, you be the one who rises up. You be the spokesman. Uh, hear what the Lord says. Arise. Now that is directed in most, most likely to Micah. Now you plead, uh, you plead this case that I have. Now look at verse, verse 2. Micah is now to bring this accusation, and God is bringing this indictment. Uh, that's what you get when you uh, have to show up in court, Right? And uh, when you get to court, the indictment will be either proven to be true or, or not true, and get a good lawyer, by the way. That's, that's what you hope for, right? Well, God has an indictment, and he has witnesses already at the courtroom. And his, his witnesses were witnesses when the covenant was made. And who are those witnesses? The witnesses are the mountains, strange. Uh, Who would bring mountains to a courtroom? God does. And, O mountains, you are my witnesses. You were there when I formed a covenant with Israel. And you who have enduring foundations, 
you who uh, will always be here uh, for generations to come, you, the faithful witnesses, you, you represent my case against my people. That's verse, verse 2. And then verse 3. These marvelous, compassionate words spoken at the gates of the city, most likely. Listen to this tender voice of God. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. God hasn't abandoned them, even though he has a hard word to say to them. He's tender and he's very firm. And he, he gives his people a chance to respond, but he begins to plead with them. Look at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Have I wearied you? Have I wearied you? And then he cries out, answer me. God isn't just saying words here. These words are to penetrate deep into the people's hearts. He pauses. Most likely, Micah perhaps paused at the city gates and said, okay, uh, anyone want to venture forth how God has burdened us? It's all quiet here, isn't it? But isn't that what you think in your hearts? Isn't that what you think in your hearts? You think that he's burdened you. Oh, perhaps the sacrifices in the temple. Uh, perhaps his laws and his statutes. They're, they're, they're burdened to you, to you. They feel over, overburdened by God. And God knows it. Testify is the, is the word. Testify against me. In a sense, God's being fair. He's not going to be just a, some, a bully in court. If you have a complaint and you can prove your complaint, now's the time to speak. Now, what is God's, uh, what is God's case? In verse 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, what God's saying here is, I was with you in the formative stages. When you were being formed as a people, I was there. I was there with great, miraculous power, and I gave you my word at Sinai. I would never leave you or depart from you. I would be your faithful God. I was with you at the formative stages. I redeemed you by blood and by miracle. Now, verse 4, I brought you up. I gave you leadership. And then there verse 5. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened at Shittim to Gilgal. That is, that's from the entrance of the land. That was the, Shittim was the first city they really came through, or first region or area. And then all the way to Gilgal, this is a geographic expansion. God's saying, I was with you in the early stages of the conquest of the land. I was with you in the first conquest of the Moabite king, Balak. I was there faithfully with you, helping you against your foes and helping you settle in the land. 
Why was God with them? Look at verse 5. That you might know the saving acts of the Lord all the way from Egypt and the delivery out of the house of slavery into settling the land. All of that is the saving acts of the Lord. That's God's case. I was with you from the beginning. And of course, the implication is, where have I failed you along the way? And what is intended here is a pause. Again, perhaps Micah paused. Let the people think about this. You have forgotten your heritage. You've forgotten the story. You've forgotten the story. And now the the thought is, this will penetrate deep in their hearts. Oh, my complaining heart. I have forgotten. That powerful Egyptian government and tyranny you dismantled you showed how powerless they were of course their situation now will be assyria this massive ancient kingdom is starting to to rumble out there and their the king at this time hezekiah is now working deals with other nations he's getting into coalitions with the pagans and they are anxious they are not trusting in god And they have forgotten that God is powerful over all the nations and he will sovereignly protect them. Let this knowledge percolate into your heart, revive your soul. Israel has never failed, excuse me, God has never failed to be the provider for Israel. Internalize this knowledge. God is the king who will lead them in triumph. And now we get into the real thinking of the people. God knows what the people are thinking. There's probably a panic at the temple. Probably. The people are probably gathering because they recognize there's are growing international threats. And now they are resorting to formalism and externalism. Let's get to the temple, kids. Let's bring some extra bulls this time. Let's let's assuage this God. Something's wrong. And so they, they begin to think, though, that there is something wrong with God and that he is demanding so much. He is so hard to please. Look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? That's sort of like level two. Now level six is calves a year old. For some reason, I guess these would uh, promise uh, uh, they could multiply and grow, but for some reason these young calves were very expensive. Now look at verse 7. There's a progression here. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Do you catch the bitterness here? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The people are aware that they are to offer a sin offering Of course, that's all representative blood. Of course, we we know that it points to the blood of Jesus. But for now, let's look at this. 
They believe that God is a hard taskmaster. In fact, they're trying to figure out how can we get this hard taskmaster off our back? How can we get him off our back? And so they are progressively becoming more and more bitter, and they even offer the idea in their hearts of a pagan idea, the pagan idea of, of the sacrifice of a, of a firstborn son, of a son. There was a practice going on then. So do you see the tone of the people's hearts? They have completely missed the mercy of God in the story that they are in. They are missing the great redemptive plan of God. And they have turned in this hardness of heart. And they have turned with an evaluation of God that he is hard and difficult to please. I'm currently reading a, a book from a Christian woman who is talking about this very similar idea. She hasn't expressed it quite this way. The pressure on her as a young wife to be good, to do good things, to be good enough, to manage all the things in her life and to appear to be good, to be, appear to be together, and this weariness that's, that's coming over her, over her heart. Willing to offer everything to just even get God off their back. Now, verse 8 is some relief here. Some relief. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And that's the, that's the end of this particular oracle. It's right there. That's a the end of that particular section, it's verses 1 through 8, it was delivered that the people would have something to, to think on. Have we been instructed in goodness? Have we been instructed in, in justice? Have, do we know what is required of us by God? Notice the very beginning of verse 8. It seems like they're almost feigning that they haven't been instructed. The Lord has told you what is good. Don't pretend that you don't know. Have you ever done that? <laughs> that you just don't know what to do. You, you really, you're in a quandary. You're, you're sort of feigning it. You, you know you need to approach your brother. You need to ask for forgiveness. You, you, you know that you have to resolve this conflict. You, you know you should do something that is right, but you put it off. We feign, we feign that. Uh, I, I just don't, don't really know what, what to do. God cuts right through that. The word of God is powerful and active sharper than any two-edged sword. God cuts right through that. He says, I've told you what is good. And the, the thought is, oh man, it's actually, oh mortal. <laughs> oh mortal. Oh mere mortal. Now, it's really interesting. Why does God bring up the subject of justice? Isn't that interesting? Justice. You would think that God would say, in their historical situation, you'd think that God would say something like, 
you know, trust in me. I mean, it makes sense. I, I delivered you in, from Egypt. I can deliver you now. Trust in me. That would, make, that would be like a nice flow to the whole thing. Kind of goes a different direction, doesn't it? You're to do justice and you're to love kindness. Love kindness, or some translations say mercy. And you're to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Is this really that complicated? The whole 10,000 rams and the whole rivers of oil. Is this really that complicated? Is God interested in just keeping your life busy? Uh-uh. He is walking with you, giving daily wisdom. And he is, he's, he's requiring of you the fulfillment of the second commandment, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's, that's right there. Now, you, we talked about um, improvisation a bit, right? We talked about the idea that the gospel now sets up improvisation in our lives. That means that we are now to take this into the workplace, love your neighbor as yourself, take this into your family uh, and love your children as yourself. You're to take this into your school and take this into your... This is now you are God's setting up your daily wisdom, how you conduct yourself. This is... There's a, there's, a, there's a relational aspect to this. God doesn't give us 10,000 rules on how to love our neighbor. Even 10,000 rules wouldn't cover all of them. So we, God is creatively letting us express this loving kindness. But why justice? Why, why that subject? Why is it important that that subject is brought up? It seems to be the core of our problem with our brother and our neighbor. That we uh, walk around with an understanding that we are just when we are not. We can hold uh, a grudge and not be just in that grudge holding. We can refuse to be reconciled and still think we are just in our lack of reconciliation. We can, in other words, this is an area of our thinking, a virtue, really. It's a virtue that is needing a great deal of education, a great deal of mentoring, a great deal, and here's the key thought, of remembering, of being corrected, of exhortation, of being realigned, of repenting. Remember we started, I started with the idea that isn't it frustrating that you have to be informed so much and you have to remember, you have to be called upon to remember things that you knew and thought you had known. I believe this is a call to God's people to come back to him and to remember and to be renewed in the changing of their mind, the renewing of their mind, that they would care about God's standards of justice and let that percolate into loving my neighbor as myself. And that comes about through regular renewal of the heart. If you took, if you were an undergraduate in uh, justice theology, you would still need the means of grace, God's word, the, the correction of other brothers and sisters, the 
the work of God's church, you would still need the, the remembering process that I owe my brother, my sister, justice. And I think justice and loving kindness there, justice and, and mercy are really merged together in, in verse 8. And of course, God has a great concern for poverty. Jesus identified with the poor by his incarnation. He associated with the lowly. In his life and death, Jesus shows identification with the poor and his inclusion of the other. Jesus entered into a society that was divided by different classes. And he communicated that everyone is important and everyone is equally made in the image of God. And we see in God's justice, we see God's justice in the atonement. For Jesus dies for the the wealthy man and the wealthy woman and the, the poor man and the poor woman. No one has an advantage at the cross. And all peoples may come, every tribe, every people, every group. And of course we see in Western civilization the influence of the image of God in man that everyone is to receive fair treatment under the law. Let me tell you, a Caesar didn't come up with that idea. Fair treatment under the law. Where where does that come from? Where are the roots of that idea? Why should the law be just? Well, guarantee you the roots of that are in the human being himself or herself. And God calls his people. God calls his people away from the panicky heart that is selfish. The panicky heart at the temple, anxious to just sort of get God off their back, to, us, to placate this God and to get on with their life, the anxious, panicky heart. And now he calls them to love your neighbor as yourself and I'll take care of the Assyrians. Repent. Be concerned with justice and loving kindness and mercy and walking humbly with me. The big picture things of the world I'll take care of. Return to the love of God. Returning to the love of God opens up the heart to serve freely. Who is my neighbor? Such is the grace of God that everyone's need that I see is my neighbor. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everyone's need that I see is my neighbor. The high and mighty view of oneself is broken down when we remember our redemption. Compassion begins to flow in our own uh, little PCA here on the island. We have three churches, one in Mililani and one over in Honolulu, the city church in Honolulu. One of their ruling elders 
has been involved in real estate for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Simpson and Lorianne Sang are joining a justice mission uh, called Zoe International. And they are in the process of moving to Chiang Mai, Thailand, to help reduce sex trafficking. And uh, Simpson and I would like to dialogue, and perhaps he could be able to talk to us before, before they leave. So justice is a huge subject for the Christian church to remember and to consider. And our legacy, Southern Presbyterian Church, is not good. Turning the a blind eye to slavery when they could have done much more to resist it and to let, help communicate to their legislators to, to change it. The church will always need to be reminded of what justice is, continue to study it, continue to realize that justice is central and key to God's heart. How does this passage connect with us and how do we derive a vibe from it? (laughs) Well, here's what I want you to get. I want you to get this. I want you to remember how often you have to remember. I want you to remember how often you have to be corrected. I want you to remember how often you have to be taught. I want you to recall how often it is that you have to be yet again thoughtful toward your spouse. Yet again thoughtful toward those you don't know. Thoughtful toward those, who you, those that you work with. Yet again and yet again and yet again. What this should teach us is this, that we should have the vibe of patience toward people. We are slow learners. And we we are recovering from hearts that are hard toward our neighbor. It's beautiful what God does here. He sort of cuts right through all the international crisis and all the potential problems and all their hard thoughts toward God, and he proves he's he's been faithful. And then he basically says this, live out this redemption in light of your neighbor. That's all I ask of you. It's not surprising how little we do that, how little it it actually doesn't really concern us. And I would suggest to us, we could take on some lofty justice ideas, and some of you are driven by that, You have mercy gifts. You're strong in mercy. We need to listen to you. I would suggest that we begin to practice here. I would suggest we begin to practice among ourselves. And the vibe that should come through is this. I, too, am one who must learn. I, too, am one who must sit under the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any any two-edged sword. And it must pierce the division of my soul and my spirit. And it will discern the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Hebrews 4.12 You see, I too am one who even though I, I may be like Israel and think, boy, this is really costly and expensive to get 
to get what God needs, I underestimate how expensive it really is because Jesus was the price of our redemption. It's not about rams and it's not about oil. And as they sort of almost sarcastically throw out this idea, what do you want, our firstborn? How expensive is it to kind of get through to you or how to, to appease you? or to, How expensive is it? Well, in a very unique way, it does cost the firstborn. And we too are those who forget how pricey it is and how expensive it was. For the justice of God to fall upon Jesus for us. He has shown us what is good, Micah 6 8. But we, with New Testament eyes, see what that goodness really looks like. We see the beauty of that goodness, the mercy of that goodness, the melting of our hearts, goodness that's come our way in Jesus. And so really what happens is this. As God redeems us, we're free, but we're also bound. You're free from these enslavements, so now you're bound to this love that has brought you this freedom. We are bound to give ourselves away. So what's the vibe we communicate, and then I'm done. We communicate, I understand. I'm slow to learn. We communicate, I forget. I need to be taught over again. We communicate that I am daily needing to be one who remembers. We communicate that I forget the, that I, the loving kindness I owe you, and I forget to walk humbly. But there is grace for me, and there's grace for you as well. Let's pray. that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Father, thank you that you have shown us this great panorama of redemption in this remarkable story. Thank you for your gospel that shows us your justice, what you're willing to do that we might be made free, brought out of the house of slavery. And now, Father, help us to love being bound to you. Help us to just practice justice among ourselves. What do we owe our brother? What encouragements do we owe each other? What does it look like for love to manifest itself here among these relationships? Father, help us to not overcomplicate the call that you have upon us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your sovereign grace that brought us into a relationship with you and the sovereign grace that's working through all the events of this world, the big issues of this world, Lord. They are yours, and the tiniest issues of this world, they are yours. And so help us give a cup of cold water in your name. Give to our brothers the love and our sisters the love that they are owed, made in the image of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.